We're going to get into Acts again today. Last week we started into the book of Acts. Today we're dealing with a passage in Acts that speaks specifically to leadership. So I'm going to need my two brave volunteers. Who are they? Brave volunteers, come on up on stage here. Adam, you willing to be one of them? Come on up. Thank you. All right. Who's it going to be? Anybody else? Brave? I got multiple finger. All right, a gator, come on up. All right, so here's the deal. If you guys were part of the congregational meeting last Sunday, you know that one of the needs that we have in church is people in key leadership positions. One of those key leadership positions is the leader of the outreach team, which focuses on outreach locally, but also missions like supporting the Mahmoud's family. So I'd like to present to you, this is a joke, our two candidates for the ministry team lead position of the outpost ministry. So we have alligator who we usually call Alligator, but her name's actually Adelie, and we have Adam. And the two of them have been chosen through a very um, uh, scientifically strenuous process as our two candidates for this particular ministry team lead. Now, you guys are going to have to determine which of you is going to be the lead by a simple exercise of rock, paper, scissors. So please uh, come to the middle here, face each other, and remember, you're going to go rock, paper, scissors, shoot, and then you're going to either do scissors or paper or rock, right? And so paper covers rock, scissors cut paper, rock smashes scissors, okay? We're going to do best of three. Okay, ready? Go. All right, keep going. Come on, you guys. All right. Okay, we're going to do best of one. As soon as we get a winner, we're going to go for it. All right, Adam, congratulations. New leader of the outreach ministry. Go build the team. Do amazing things for God. All right. Thank you, you two brave volunteers. Um, th- thank you, young people, for being braver than all of the older folks in the room. So, Wouldn't that be insane if that's how we chose key leaders in our church? And yet the passage that we're going to look at today is strangely similar to that. And it's going to make us a little uncomfortable. We're going to have to ask a few questions. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 1. If you're opening a pew Bible, I think it's page 909. And uh, we're going to be looking, starting with verse 12. As a summary, last week we started into Acts. The book of Acts, known usually formally as the Acts of the Apostles, tells the story of how the, the early church was, was started by Jesus and then grew to become what is now the most important religious movement in the history of the world. It started really small. How did Jesus start it? How did Jesus grow his church? The book of Acts is written by Luke, who is the same guy who wrote what we call the Gospel of Luke. It's like Luke part two. And Luke, we looked at last week how he actually says, look, in my first book, I started to tell you all that Jesus had done, and now I'm going to tell you how he continued to do his work. The story of Acts is the story of God building his church. It's not the story of the church building itself. It's God building his church. That's why Luke starts off by saying, in my previous book, I told you all that Jesus began to do, because Jesus is continuing to do it now in the book of Acts. It's a history. We know that Luke was a doctor, so very educated, smarty-pants guy. 
He tells us himself that he was careful in his research. He wanted, by his own purpose stated, he wanted to present an orderly and accurate, uh, a trustworthy account of what happened. He wants us to know the true history of what happened. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke wrote for us the book of Acts, and then God has seen that it is preserved for us now for almost 2,000 years. It is a gift to us. I feel particularly grateful for it as I think about what, what is our church going to become? Is it, is it up to us to build the church? Is it up to us to define what the church is and what we should be? Or is God defining the church? Is God calling his church? Is God building his church? And the witness of the book of Acts is that it is God building, calling and defining his church. We are not a business. We are not a social club. We are not a political party. We are the people of God, created, recreated through faith in Christ, called out of the world into a spiritual family, and sent back into the world on mission for Him. The only way that we can build a truly God-honoring church is to rely on His power. That's going to become very obvious as we go through Acts. You'll remember that Jesus gave the disciples His great commission. He said, go into all the world. Make disciples, teach them to obey, baptize them, and I'll be with you always. That's in Matthew 28. In Acts 1.8, which is what we're going to put on the screen first here, in Acts 1.8, we get some more details about that. We looked at this last week. Jesus says to the disciples just before he ascends into heaven to be with the Father. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Just before that, Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem. We talked about last week how this is a little confusing. Jesus says, go, here's your mission, now wait. And specifically, wait in Jerusalem the place where the people who murdered Jesus are in charge and want to murder you. That's what he is asking them to do. Go, but first wait in the dangerous place. What are you waiting for? You're waiting for the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that when the Spirit comes to this baby church, the Spirit will empower the church to be witnesses of Jesus. And he says in Jerusalem and in Judea, which would be like, for us, Columbus and all Ohio, and then in Samaria, which were like the, the evil people to the north, so Michigan, and then the whole world, right? That's the, the scope of what's being said there. Uh, Tiffany, can you pull me down just a little bit? I think I hear it's ringing there. Thank you. So you've got concentric circles going out, and basically we get to the whole world. I showed you this map of the Roman Empire. Let's go to the, the second one there. Next one. There we go. And this is basically by the, by the time we get two centuries into the church, that whole shaded area, both green and gray, has received to some degree the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we go from a few people scared, hiding in a room in Jerusalem to that map? It starts with waiting for the promised Holy Spirit who then comes and empowers his church. So let's see what happens. Verse 12 of Acts 1. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So they're up on what we would call the Mount of Olives. Let's go to a map here. This is Jerusalem at the time. The red oblong shape there would be the, the outline of the Mount of Olives. You've got the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying and he was arrested from there. They're up on top of the Mount of Olives when uh, Jesus ascends to heaven. They now walk back to Jerusalem and we're told this is a Sabbath day's journey, which is about 0.6 miles. This was a law that the Old Testament people set up, saying you're not allowed to walk more than this distance on the Sabbath, or it's considered work. So if you walked out the front door here, and you made your way over to the entrance of Heritage Park, that would be as far as you are allowed to walk on a Sabbath. For them, they walked down the, the hill that's called the Mount of Olives, through the gate, up into the city, somewhere to a building where they kind of hid out, in an upper room. Verse 13. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we get this This list, this roll call of the the tiny baby Christian church. We've got the apostles. We looked at last week how Jesus first called 12 guys, called them disciples, which means a learner or a student. He later sent them out on mission and started calling them apostles, which means one who is sent. We've We've got those names here, and then we're told that there are some women with them, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And we have to ask, whose brothers? Well, Jesus' brothers. And depending on your church background, that may surprise you. Some churches teach that Mary remained a virgin the rest of her life. And yet there are multiple places in the New Testament that tell us that Jesus had brothers. They've been half-brothers. So Joseph and Mary had other kids the old-fashioned way, rather than through the immaculate conception of Jesus. And we're actually told in different places some of their names. So in Matthew 13, we can read this. Um, These are the people who are actually... um, resisting Jesus, they say this, is not this Jesus, the carpenter's son, speaking of Joseph, his adoptive but not biological father, is not, the, is not his mother Mary, are not his brothers James, this is the James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, and Joseph and Simon and Judas, not the guy who betrayed Jesus, common name, but this is a guy who is later known as Jude, who wrote the book of Jude in the New Testament, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Or where, how did he learn all these teachings? Like, we remember him as a kid. What's he doing leading this new religious movement? Acts 1.14 just casually tells us that Jesus' brothers are with the, the disciples, the apostles, in the upper room. And that is amazing because throughout his three years of ministry, none of these brothers really wanted anything to do with Jesus. They mocked him publicly. They teased him. At one point, they tried to kidnap him because they thought he was insane and they just needed to bring him home and like care for his broken brain. And yet, now after the resurrection of Jesus, these guys are counted with this small baby church and history tells us that they are willing to go to torturous deaths rather than recant their belief that Jesus their half-brother, 
rose from the dead and is the reigning Lord of the universe. The resurrection of Jesus has transformed these guys from doubters and skeptics into I'm willing to risk my life to tell the world that Jesus is Lord. So, what do these followers do? Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they're, they're waiting, but they're not just sitting around twiddling their thumbs or playing checkers. They are devoting themselves to prayer. They've got a decision to make, actually, lots of decisions. They, they don't know what to do, and so they, they go to God in prayer, and they wait. That is a model and an encouragement for us. Are you trying to figure something out in life? Is something overwhelming you? Are you worn out or beaten down or overwhelmed and you don't know what to do? Wait for God in prayer. Just be honest with God. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. I don't know what to choose. I don't know how to deal with this. I don't, I just, help, please. What is going on, Lord? I don't understand. I need your help. It's a good place to be. Now, if you're familiar with the three years of Jesus' ministry and his 12 guys, you're probably not going to be surprised that Peter at this point thinks, hey, somebody's got to take charge. It might as well be me, right? So, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. It's a lot bigger than we were thinking, right? Must be a large upper room that they're all crammed into. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So Peter stands up and he says, guys, you know, Judas betrayed Jesus. What are we going to do about it? He's going to make the case that we need to replace Judas. But notice, notice how he talks about this. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, if you know some about biblical history, maybe you're putting the timeline together and you're thinking, wait a minute, King David, who wrote like most of the Psalms, he lived about a thousand years before Jesus or Judas was born, and yet Luke is recording for us that Peter says that the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, recorded for us in the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David is somehow prophesying a a thousand years beforehand about Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. This is a clear point in the New Testament where the case is is made, almost, almost just asserted, that the Old Testament is the inspired word of God. Right? So you're going to see in Psalm 69, this is, he's going to quote from Psalm 69 and from Psalm 109, and, and Peter is basically saying, look, the Holy Spirit, thousand years ago, speaking through the mouth of David, recorded for us in the Psalms, preserved for us as the Old Testament, is God speaking to us. It's not simply a collection of ancient writings and histories, and in the case of the Psalms, a bunch of songs that some people wrote, but it is the 
scriptures, the holy scriptures written by God for us. If we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament that way, it changes the way we look at all kinds of things. It changes the way that we view our families, our roles in our families, our roles in church. Because if we allow this collection of 66 books to be considered authoritative, inspired word of God, then it guides us, it constrains us, where the world may say, go in this direction, and scriptures say, go in this direction, if we honor the scriptures as the inspired word of God, we go in a different direction than the world. So, you'll remember Judas was originally one of the twelve. He betrayed Jesus, chose to make some quick cash, turning Jesus over to the authorities to be arrested, beaten, sham of a trial, hung on a cross. What did Judas do after that? Verse 18. Now this man, speaking of Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. The young guys in the room are like, hey, that's pretty cool. We don't get to talk about this very often in church, but you know, imagine him laying on the ground and his belly bursts open and all of his guts come out, right? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akhaldama, that is, field of blood. So for years, I imagine... Kids say, Mom, can I go out and play? Yes, but just don't go near the field of blood. Right? Stay away from that place. Okay? Now keep in mind, I just told you that we should consider the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, the inspired word of God. And yet these verses I just read to you actually present a little bit of a challenge to that. Because we're told in Matthew that Jesus comes to an end in what would seem like a contradictory and different way. So in Matthew 27, we can read that Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Then he feels great remorse when he realizes what, what he's done is so evil. And so he takes the money back to the priest. And the priest says, yeah, we can't take this. This is blood money now. Like, you know, self-righteous. Like they're going to do the right thing at this point. And so they, Matthew tells us they, they purchase a field on behalf of Judas with that money. Judas hangs himself in that field to commit suicide. You think, well, wait a minute, what is going on here? We've got two different stories. Are these contradicting each other? Traditionally, Christians have understood these as complementary. You can imagine Judas is hanging from a tree and nobody wants anything to do with him. And the body remains there. It swells as it decomposes inside and eventually falls to the ground and bursts open. That is the traditional way of trying to reconcile these two passages. But the point of the two passages is mostly just to tell us what happened to Judas. He didn't make it much longer than the crucifixion. That his sin came back and crushed him. Justice flattened him. And then the disciples had a choice to make. What are we going to do about the empty spot that was Judas's? Verse 20. Peter's still speaking. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And that would be coming from Psalm 69. And then he says, and let another take his office. And that would come from Psalm 109. 
Now, if you went back and you read Psalm 69 and you read Psalm 109, you'd notice that the name of Judas is nowhere in there, and you'd read through it and you'd think, how in the world is Peter actually getting to this conclusion? How can he look back at the Psalms and, and just pull these out and quote them and say, this is all part of God's master plan? If you and I did that, we would be saying, we would say to each other, look, you're taking stuff out of context, you're really messing with the scripture sharing, yet Peter does that himself. And this is where we have to allow the scriptures, the Bible, to interpret the Bible for us. So this is the Holy Spirit working in this situation, giving Peter insight into what's going on. And while we do not have permission to play fast and loose with the Old Testament, Peter's not actually doing that. He's being inspired by the Holy Spirit in order to communicate these important things. And he looks back and he realizes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that these these, these passages in Psalm 69 and 109, they actually are they're pointing towards the situation that they're in right now. So he, he looks back at that and he says, look, the Old Testament says these things. I think this is about us right now. So let's figure out somebody to take his place. Why would they even bother? I mean, we've got our list of 11. It's almost 12. Why not just settle for 11, right? I think there's an ancient reason, and I think there was, for them, a contemporary or current reason. The ancient reason goes like this. Where else in the Bible do we see the number 12 being important? And the obvious answer is the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So when God sets up this family in the Old Testament to become the nation of Israel, he's got 12 tribes set up, and we looked at this in Genesis when we went through the Genesis series. God chooses 12 tribes to form a nation to represent him to the world. The disciples, at this point, are still thinking and expecting that Jesus is going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. We saw this last week. This was in uh, Acts 1, 6, and 7. Um, We read this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you, going to, are you going to pull the band back together? Are we going to be the kingdom that we were supposed to be? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so they're still in this mode of the kingdom of Israel is the representation of God in the world. And so it makes sense that if they're drawing parallels to 12 tribes of Israel, and they think they're going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Maybe they're going to be like the leaders of these new 12 tribes, and we need a 12th person in there. But then there's the more contemporary idea, too, and the fact that Jesus himself chose 12 on purpose. Jesus, actually, uh, in the book of Matthew, he predicts that the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones in heaven in order to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So maybe the apostles think, well, okay, one of those Thrones is going to be empty unless we pick somebody to go in there. Whatever they're thinking there, they come to the conclusion that we need another person. We need to get back up to 12. And so the question is, how are they going to go about determining who this 12th person is? They recognize that this is a key leadership position in the church. And they've got to be careful how they do it. How will they choose this important leader? How will they first determine what are the qualifications for leadership? And here's our first surprise, really. 21. So, this is still Peter talking. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, those three years of ministry, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, so including his death and resurrection, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So Jesus had his 12 main guys, but there was a lot larger group that followed him around for those three years. In fact, at one point, Jesus chooses not just the 12, but he chooses 72, and he sends them out on a special mission. Well, he had to have a pool of people to draw from in order to pick those 72 and send them out. And so Peter says, look, even though our replacement was not one of the original 12, we've got to pick somebody who's been with us the whole time so that he's, he's seen all the miracles of Jesus, he's heard all the teaching of Jesus, he has witnessed, at least from afar, the death of, resurrect, death of Jesus, and he has to have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, somebody who can be a reliable first-person witness must be chosen to fill this spot. Now, we don't know how many people would have matched that qualification, but we see that they, they pick out two candidates. So verse 23, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. Now, this actually makes me chuckle a little bit, because as you'll see, they choose Matthias. Well, why in the world tell us Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, if the guy they're going to pick is Matthias anyway? Why, why is this important for Luke? Like, he's just in detail, doctor overload. He's like, I know this extra information. I've got to make sure I put this in here so that they know exactly who I'm talking about, even though this guy just disappears from history after the choice is made. But that is how Luke operates. So they got two guys. What do they do next? They pray. Again, they pray. We don't know what to do. Lord, please tell us. Verse 24. They prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So, notice what they say about God. They say, God, you know the hearts of all. We don't know the hearts of these two men. We, we, we've known them for years. We, we've, we're friends with them, but we don't, know their, we don't know their hearts. But you know them. You know, Lord. You know what's going on in the inside. They might be able to fool us, but they can't fool you, Lord. And so please, somehow, show us whom you have chosen. There's a beautiful humility in that. Even Peter, you know, the guy who says, I've got to take charge, he, he says, I'm not making this choice. The Lord must choose. Sometimes we look back on our choices in life and we realize, wow, I think God was like divinely guiding me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but if I had chosen this direction instead of this direction, my life would be completely different. And sometimes in the middle of those moments, we're like, what's that weird feeling inside my gut like is that the is that the spirit of god directing me in one way and when you're in a situation like that it's been my experience that whatever is the the harder more challenging scarier path is probably the one that god is leading you on as uncomforting as that is but sometimes you look you look back in your life and you think huh i chose that way it worked out that way if i chose the other way which i didn't it would have been very different to a tiny little smaller scale that happened to me last week where 
Jen, on Monday, she dropped me off at the Stillwater River so that I could go paddling by myself for a nice eight-mile trip. It was beautiful. And I was paddling a section that I had paddled before, coming up to an island where I got to decide, do I go around to the right side of the island or the left side of the island? And I've always gone on the right side, and there's an area up on the bank there where Caleb and I and a couple other guys camped a few years ago. And I wanted to just go past that campsite and kind of remember camping there. So I get up to the point where I got to make the decision, and there's a lot of water going to the left side of the island, and there's just a little bit of water going to the right side. Normally, I would say, I'm going with a lot of water because that's going to be easier and faster, and I'm not going to drag on the ground or run into rocks or anything. But because I want to see the campsite, I go to the right side. I'm kind of bumping down the shallow area to get around there. And when I finally make it down to the bottom of the island, I can turn and look back up the left channel where the water's going nice and fast. And it's really deep, but there's a giant log entirely across the river about three inches above the water. So if I would have gone to the left, I would have come around the corner, and maybe I would have had time to do something about it, but maybe not. Maybe I would have just run into that log and gone for a nice, refreshing swim. I said, thank you, God, that I got to stay dry and stay on the right channel. Now, that is inconsequential. That's just a little thing. But sometimes we look back in life, and we, we see the big hand of God in our decisions. These guys are intentionally welcoming that hand of God into the decision beforehand. Now, how exactly did they make the decision? Here's the weird twist at the end. 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And we think, what in the world? First of all, what is casting lots? Well, it's a common thing in the ancient world. We don't have any written descriptions from the ancient world like how to cast lots. But as far as we can tell, the most likely thing is that you had what we would almost consider dice, so like rocks or blocks of wood that are marked, so that like one means Joseph and one means Matthias. And, and you'd either put them into a container and shake them out like the barrel for Yahtzee, Right? Or you'd put them into something and you'd reach in blindly and grab one and, and pull it out. And that would somehow be the choice. Now, this is actually used a few times in the Old Testament. So when the nation of Israel has been called out of Egypt and they've you know, wandered in the desert and they're going into the land of Canaan to take possession of it, at some point they used this practice of casting lots to help determine which tribe got which section of land. Now, that's a nice parallel to this whole idea of our 12 tribes and our 12 apostles and who are you choosing, Lord. Maybe that's why they chose to do it that way, but it was done a few other times in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament. So at the crucifixion of Jesus, the Roman soldiers recognized the value of Jesus' clothes, and they cast lots to determine who got to take the clothes. So we look at that, and we think, this is like Flipping a coin or the rock, paper, scissors fiasco that we did earlier. And that's okay, you know, for deciding who gets to choose where you go for dinner or who's the team captain on the playground, right? But we're talking about who are we choosing as the 12th apostle of the early church? And if we're honest, our modern sensibilities think this is a bit of a joke. And yet, this is what they chose to do. And they did it in a way that they're inviting God to be in control 
of the decision. This is, this is really key for us. It's not so much how they made the decision, but the fact that they say, God, we want you to make this decision for us. Because whose church is it anyway? It's Jesus' church. Who chose those 12 tribes to be the nation of Israel? God did. Who chose those 12 first apostles? God did. Who has the right to choose this new 12th apostle? God does. And so in humility, in a way that seems a little weird to us, they surrender that decision to God, and Matthias gets named as that 12th apostle. As weird as that is for us, I hope it's an encouragement to you, especially as we think about you know, leadership and decisions in our church. This, this is not our church as in we own it. God owns. We, we are his. He owns this church. We are his people. And we want to seek to honor that. Choice of leaders, making decisions, all of those things. Casting lots is actually not as ancient and weird as you'd think. So some of you have to deal with OSHA at work. Right? OSHA stands for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. They're the helpful people that tell you you have to wear a hard hat or you have to have steel-toed shoes or they put the helpful signs in the bathroom so you know to wash your hands when you're done. That's the kind of thing that OSHA does. And in recent COVID-19 drama, our president has leaned on OSHA and said, OSHA, you're going to make a new rule that requires any company with 100 employees or more to require their employees to be vaccinated. Now, there's no precedence for this. OSHA really doesn't have the authority to do that. And yet they're tasked with that authority. And because there's no precedence and no authority, there's going to be lots of challenges to that. Now, because it's this weird special emergency order, the challenges will skip the lower courts and they'll go directly to the federal courts of appeals. There's multiple districts of the federal courts of appeals. So if there's a challenge in Ohio and there's a challenge in, say, Oregon, how will the courts decide which district hears the case? Do you know how they decide? They put names in a barrel, and they pull one out. And that's which court will decide whether or not OSHA has the authority to determine this. Like, this is the United States, 2021, right? So it's not so weird for us. Now, there's a lot at stake there, because you get some, some districts that are very liberal, some districts that are very conservative. So I guess, in a way, it kind of makes sense, like, there's no manipulation, hopefully, of that process. It's just chance. And yet we see in Acts here that it is more than chance. It is God somehow working through this. So we have to ask, is this how we should pick leaders for our church today? When we read the Bible, one of the key ways that we have to interpret it is we have to ask, is this passage descriptive or prescriptive? Does it describe what happened or does it prescribe what should happen? And nowhere in the New Testament are we told that we should cast lots or flip a coin or anything like that in order to choose leaders in the church or make decisions or anything like that. We are not prescribed to do that at any point. This is a descriptive passage. Are there any passages in the New Testament that tell us how we should choose leaders? How we should go about making those choices? There are. I want to share a couple with you and we'll be done. Later on in Acts, 
many moons from now, when we get to Acts 14, we're going to read about how Paul comes on his missionary's journey. He comes back through an area where he's already planted some churches, and now he's going to make sure that there are elders, same word as pastor, over these churches. Acts 14, 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So how did you get the elders or the pastors in those local churches? They were appointed. That's how it was done. They did it with prayer and fasting, relying on God. Now that's, that's interesting. Again, it's descriptive. Could we get a little more direct? Could we be prescriptive? Can we at least answer the question, what sort of people do we want to have in key leadership roles in the church? And thankfully, God has answered that for us in a pretty good detail. So if we look in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, again, this is Paul writing. He's writing to a young pastor named Titus. And in in verse 5, he says this, this is why I left you in Crete. So all those journeys, all over the place, planting churches. He left Titus in Crete. Here's why. So that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town or for every local church as I directed you. So again, there's this idea of appointment. Here are the qualifications. This is not an exhaustive list. There are multiple points in the New Testament that describe for us what an elder, pastor, key leader should be. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, that's not just saying not polygamous, but it's the idea, uh, the original language of the idea is a one-woman man. His heart is for his wife only. There is no threat of him being unfaithful. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery, that's drunkenness or insubordination. For an overseer, same word as pastor, bishop, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So no no accusations stick because his reputation is such that he is above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or we could say proud, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so speaking of the scriptures, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, at least in the occasion where Paul is writing to Titus, that's his list. Paul writes to another young pastor, Timothy, and he says in a similar list, 1 Timothy 3, saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, he desires a noble task. So, there may be some of you in this room that think, man, someday I would like to be an elder. I would like to be a pastor. I would like to be used by God to oversee a church. That's a noble thing. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, meaning people outside the church, so that they may not fall into that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So this is the, the Spirit of God speaking through the Apostle Paul, being recorded for us in letters to Titus and Timothy, preserved for us as New Testament scripture, giving us a list of not an exhaustive list, but a list, qualifications of who is the kind of person you look for in an elder position or pastor overseer position. All of us who are in Christ should look like that. That's a picture of what a mature Christian should look like. You've got goals for um, your career or school or sports or retirement or weight loss or whatever those. Do you have a goal? Do you have a picture, a vision for what you should be becoming as a Christian? Does it look like these lists that I just read? That's a picture, a vision of maturity in Christ that all of us, whether we just met Jesus or been with him for years, we should be working towards that picture of maturity. And I would speak especially to the young men in the group here. Do you want to become that kind of man? Paul, he's calling out the men in this. He says, men, this is the picture of maturity in Christ. This is what a real man of God looks like. So, young men in the group, is this what you want to be? And are you working towards it? Are you willing to become the kind of man that God will use as an elder, as a pastor, as a deacon in the future? Or will you, like most in our world, just kind of coast and grow a little bit, but never really become what is laid out for us in the New Testament? I don't mean to leave the ladies behind in this. Paul is calling out the men in this, but ladies... Are you willing to become this picture too? Are you willing to say, I'm not going to settle for just kind of being better than, than most, comparing myself to others, but I'm going to become the kind of woman that embodies these, these characteristics. Whether if, if I could listen in at my funeral, these people that know me could stand up and say, she was this and this and this. She was a godly woman. Will you be the kind of woman that God can use to shape his church, to serve his church, to nurture his church, to raise up the next generation of his church? Nowhere in our passage in Acts today do we receive that challenge. It's just a descriptive passage. Here's what happened. But I think by bringing in our Titus and our 1 Timothy 3, passages, and recognizing that Jesus calls us to maturity, 
think we can say that we can take these passages and we can say, I, I know God is calling me to maturity. He does not save me in order to let me be a baby Christian my whole life. He calls me in order to make me mature. My encouragement and challenge to you guys today is, will you offer yourself to your Lord so that you can become more of what we just read? We say, Lord, take my life. That's the song we're going to sing in just a minute. Take my life, Lord. That doesn't mean kill me. It means all that I have, everything I am, I offer it to you. Do with it whatever you will. Grow me, shape me, make me into the man or woman of God that matches these characteristics. Use me in small levels of service, high levels of servant leadership, anywhere in between, whatever you want, God. It's all on the table. That is a very dangerous thing to pray. And yet, boy, does it please your Heavenly Father. And it leads to a life without regret. When you get to the end, you look back and say, I lived for my Lord. And he shaped me into the person that I am for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the, uh, the passage in Acts that tells us what took place there in history and giving us the passages in Titus and Timothy to, to show us what you prescribe for us. Lord, every one of us in this room falls short of what it is that you have called us to be yet. But we don't want that to be the end of the story. So if we are rebelling against you, if we are living in particular sin and, and we're aware of it, Lord, we want to come to you and we want to confess that to you now. We want to ask you to forgive us. And we want to turn. We want to repent, go another direction. Lord, if we're just um, consumed with our lives and building our little kingdom, we want to repent of that too. If we are governed by fear or insecurity, we want to surrender that and say, Lord, some of these guys, they must have been terrified too. We want to offer ourselves to you. We want to say, please grow us, mature us, pull out the weeds, make the garden fruitful. You, Lord Jesus, are the one who saved us. You are the one who has planted your church. You are the one tending the garden to grow your church into maturity. And we want to be the mature disciples that you have called us out to be. So, Lord, as we reflect, as we prepare, prepare for communion, work in us, show us what it is we need to be confessing and repenting of, how we need to be uh, more surrendering our life to you so that at the end of our lives, we are mature. You are our Lord. You are worthy of all of this. We thank you that you do not just leave us to wallow in infancy, but that you call us to maturity. So with joy and with thanksgiving, with trembling, we now come and reflect on how we can greater surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name.